Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to another weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm Brian McCullough. If you're anything like me, then you probably have several different Twitters that you follow, like, you know, Tech Twitter, obviously. Also for me, English football Twitter, comedy and improv Twitter, Wall Street Twitter, as I mentioned, and also for me, econ Twitter. If you want the single best person in economics Twitter to follow, it's Noah Smith, Bloomberg's economics opinion columnist. If you want to follow him, it's at Noah Opinion, by the way. If you want a great Substack to sign up for, try noahopinion.substack.com. The free article he shared this week is called Triumph of the Hodlers. I hope I remember to link to it in the show notes because it's the best summation I've read of what's going on with Bitcoin at the moment. And also, as you'll hear, he has a great new podcast with another economist I respect, Brad DeLong. Link to that, hopefully, also in the show notes. Noah is just a smart, smart guy. If you want a smart economics angle to anything happening in the world right now, he's just the best. I sat down with him to hash out some of the sort of tongue-in-cheek questions we've been asking obliquely lately, like, is, you know, remote work for real? Is it the future? And is Silicon Valley, quote, over? Noah and I have been friendly on Twitter over the years, occasionally doing dorky DMs about obscure details about the Holy Roman Empire, but this is the first time I met him, if you will. It's been a while since I was sort of starstruck to interview someone, but here you go. The great Noah Smith. All right, so let me bring up my notes here, start my timer. Uh, let's. First, do you want to see rabbits, though? Sure. Yeah, consider ourselves recording. Show me the rabbits. Rabbit. How many do you have now? Two. And how, because I've seen you, I, like at first I kind of thought I didn't follow the thread exactly. I thought you were joke tweeting about rabbits. But so, how long have you been oh. a, a rabbit parent now? A rabbit parent. I've, um, I got this rabbit in uh, um, 2017. Uh, and then I got my second rabbit in late 2018 because she was getting bored and she needed a companion. So, I got her a companion. And uh, do you let them loose in the house, or they stay in that sort of crate thing, or what? Oh no, no, they, I, they're they're loose in the house. They they have a little fence uh, which both prevents them from strewing hay all over the apartment, and gives them a feeling of like their little territory. But they don't really need it. Um, <laughs> they they usually just sleep under my bed. To be honest, do you ever they, let them um, sleep in the bed? They don't want to. Rabbits won't. At least my rabbits will never, they won't go up on a bed. Like they'll sometimes jump on the bed briefly, but they'll be like, what is this soft thing? And then just, just hop down. Well, uh, don't, don't tell my daughter because, uh, even though we got her a puppy, she always wants a cat now and then a horse. And so (laughs) rabbit would obviously be next on the chain. Um, all right. So let's start off with this because listeners know that I keep going back and forth with this idea of, 
remote work and is it the new normal in post-pandemic times? I, I just did a a story yesterday about Salesforce saying they're going to go to mostly remote work, which is ironic considering they built that giant skyscraper <laughs> that they're like, I wonder if they regret that now. But so how are you thinking about this stuff? Do you, do you think that we're going to see a meaningful change in where people are working or is this sort of faddish? Well, so um, <clears throat> I think we're going to see a shift toward remote work, but it's tempered by, uh, a couple things. Number one, if people work remotely three days out of the week and then go into the office two, they still have to live near the office. And so the residential patterns don't change. Maybe you could uh, have more flexible office arrangements or downsize your office because you have fewer people in there at any time. And so commercial real estate developers uh, could still get hit. But um, in terms of hollowing out cities, it's probably not going to happen. Um, people have to be completely remote and they're not just going to have to be completely remote they're going to also have to do things like job search and networking completely remote. So there's this whole bundle of things that you can do with physical proximity. And we're going to have to, in order to sort of unbundle the city, as it were, we're going to have to be able to do all those things remote. And I think that's a taller order than people realize, which doesn't mean it's impossible. Um, there, the other factor is um, the fact that cities are fun to live in. And if people, you know, work at a company that's based in New York and they move from New York to, um, you know, Taipei and now they're in Taipei instead of New York. And then people from Taipei move to New York. You've still got the same number of workers in these superstar cities. They just live in different ones. So for this to really have an effect on sort of, um, evening out this, this sort of, uh, very lopsided distribution of, of, um, employment in cities, you know, if we're going to get tech workers, uh, to be to be less concentrated in like San Francisco, for example, um, it's going to require that they move to sort of what we call second tier cities, kind of a not the nicest expression, but but we're going to have to get tech workers living in Cleveland, and we're going to have to get tech workers living in um, you know Youngstown or places like that to really to have their local spending revitalize those places. Um, I think we're we're going to see a movement towards cities like. Dallas, Houston, Austin, uh, Atlanta is going to be a big one. Um, we're, those aren't what I'd call second tier cities, but they're sort of sub superstars. I think we're going to see towns like uh, like Nashville become popular. Well, you, you uh, wrote that like you, you thought like the whole the whole Sun Belt is pretty much a decent candidate. The Sun Belt is a decent candidate, um, and that's always been true because the Sun Belt really sprawls, and once people are past their sort of um, you know, meeting people years and, and ready to raise kids. I think that people, e including millennials, have a strong desire to move to the suburbs. You see that in all the data. The, the suburban dream is not dead. I think people want more walkability to their suburbs. I think people want some more transit in their suburbs. I think people want more density, um, more restaurant choice and things like that. They want suburbs to be a little more like cities, but I don't think that we're going to see a lot of people you know, raising kids in, in highly densified downtowns of places like Dallas, Texas, that's not going to happen. And so I think we'll see some movement. I, I think the movement is going to be pretty marginal and pretty healthy. Actually. I think that, um, it's good to, to move some of the, the high value workforce out of the very top cities like San Francisco, New York, Seattle, LA, uh, and Boston and DC. 
And so take those, those that really super top rank of cities and move people out uh, to, to some other places. I think that's going to be ultimately healthy for the country. The, um, the, the question specifically of Silicon Valley itself, um, is it? Is it sort of settled science for economists, like why certain cities become hubs for certain intellectual pursuits or capital pursuits or things like that? Like, is that well known and well understood? No. So we have a lot of theories about why this happens. Um, one idea is the idea of tacit knowledge exchange. So when engineers sort of uh, hang out with each other, they tell each other how to do stuff. It's not clear how powerful that is. Um, anymore. I mean, it's it's important for researchers to be able to exchange ideas very intensively at things like universities, but engineers going out to the bar and saying like, oh, I implemented this with that sort of thing, that it's probably not nearly as big a deal and can now just be done on like Stack Exchange and whatever, GitHub. And so so that that sort of tacit knowledge exchange is is it's hard to establish. It's hard to measure because you can't really observe these ideas going around. You can look at patents. That's all you can really look at. But there's lots of problems with that data. Um, another idea, so uh, another big reason for cities, uh, for the, these concentrations of knowledge industries is called thick markets. So if you want to hire an engineer, there's a lot of engineers in in San Francisco, right? And if you want to work for a tech company, there's lots of tech companies in San Francisco. So there's just so much more choice within these superstar cities, right? You With all this choice, you can lose your job and find another similar job really quickly. Or you can um, lose your employee and find another employee really quickly. Whereas if you're out in, you know, like Butte, you can't you can't necessarily do that unless we move it all to remote. So so if we figure out how to do hiring and firing and job search and blah 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 as well remotely as we do in person, whole new ball game uh, because you've you've just sort of canceled out that that thick market um, effect. We and notice we also have to do that for VCs. So VCs famously uh, want to, you know, live like a 15 minute bike ride from their, the companies they invest in. And that, that mindset has got to change. That culture has got to change to really unbundle the startup cities. Well, and I mean, you know, this is a, the example of the moment and, and one example, but you know, what's the hottest startup, uh, in, in Silicon, in the world right now, it's Clubhouse. Clubhouse is in San Francisco. Clubhouse is uh, Andreessen Horowitz is basically this is one of the greatest sort of thick uh, influence, if that if that's using the term right that I've seen in a long time, in terms of Andreessen Horowitz really helping juice the success of that startup. So, yeah, Clubhouse isn't in uh, Cleveland, right? Yes, and so that's, uh, but but then again. Um, Kim but Cutler it could be, but it could Capital. be because there is only what, like eighteen people uh, right. behind Clubhouse right be. now. So, right, go ahead. Right. So, I mean, um, it that that depends on you know Andreessen Horowitz being willing to invest in distributed companies, and I think that they are. I know those those guys pretty well. I think that they are open to the possibility, and I think that there is a slow. There'll be a a gradual change. I think they're realizing that. Um they're realizing that that costs in San Francisco are just really high. Um, Kim Mike Cutler of Initialized Capital just mm-hmm. posted some data from her, her own fund the other day showing that their investment in distributed companies is increasing and the number, the percentage of founders who say that they would want to do distributed companies has just shot up enormously. So maybe, maybe this cultural change is coming. I think there'll always be some local 
a bias, uh, but I think that maybe it could be reduced. I certainly know VCs at Bloomberg who are working to reduce that. Um, because really, I feel like the, the due diligence and human touch that you need to keep track of a portfolio company, the necessity for that to be physical and on-site has just decreased so much. Um, and I think that the pandemic is maybe making VCs realize that, I hope. Um, I think there'll always be a slight advantage to being nearby, but I think that can be outweighed by uh, the cost disadvantage. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. You know, it's it's funny. Just last weekend, speaking of initialized, I had Gary Tan on. And one of the things that he he made a point to make a point of was he was like, I'm not leaving San Francisco. And and he also made the point that several other people have made is like, sure, if you, it's it's almost confirmation bias, where if you're settled and you've sort of made it either as a company or as an investor, or even as a you know rock star engineer, you've got kids, you, 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 those are the people that are moving. But they those people also wouldn't know about the 24-year-old, 25-year-old developers that are now coming to San Francisco because rent is down 30% in a year or something like that. Right. Um, right. The Let me ask you this. Uh, because the, the, the converse is, is you've got VCs heading to Miami and, and won't shut up on Twitter about how great it, <laughs> Miami is and how Silicon Valley Wait, is. Wait, are there any besides Keith? There are there are a couple. I think they're all okay, Keith's friends, but yeah. okay. <laughs> um, the <laughs> the only one I know is Keith. Well, very enthusiastic. They they almost their sort of you know stance, it, it, whether it's a rhetorical stance or not, is that Silicon Valley and California is almost like a failed state, um, and that it's over, it's done. Only the the smart companies are all already not even considering San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Is there any precedent for that for a city absolutely losing its its hub stat? I mean, you know, there's still a lot of car activity in Detroit. And I mean, you could point to like, I guess, uh, port cities like, you know, Venice had to trade trade as its industry for vice. That's, uh, you know, but in modern times, like most of the examples are just about factories going overseas. Is there, is there, can you think of a historical example of like intellectual capital and capital resources? Like I can think of industry specific clusters that have sort of lost their mojo. So for example, Boston route One Twenty Eight is the, the canonical example here. Like, you know, people used to think that the future of the computer industry was in of the IT industry was Boston. And, um, and then it really lost out in the, uh, in the seventies and eighties. Um, it really lost out to, to the Bay. And so, 
um, in that case, it was a case of, it wasn't a case of a knowledge cluster sort of dispersing to, you know, out to many smaller ones. It was a case of, you know, one knowledge cluster sort of winning over another. You can certainly lose. Um, the question is, what does it look like to lose? And so, um, uh, in terms of knowledge clusters really going away, you, you've had like shifts in financial centers a lot. You've had, um, yeah, you've had, you've had cities that like, like Tokyo used to be a huge financial center and then really lost out to, um, to other Asian countries. Uh, and, and other potentially, Asian cities, like, potentially London is maybe about to lose out. <laughs> London Brexit, is, right. that's right. And so, when we've had this big, long wave of globalization and wave of increasing knowledge industries since World War II, it's difficult to point to, you know, recent examples where clustering effects, where, where cities lost their cluster simply because clustering effects were just getting more and more important across the board. There was this macro trend. But you can see some cases of places that lost out. Um, Detroit is an interesting one uh, because... Yeah, Detroit is still a cluster of auto manufacturing stuff. Um, you said you talked about shipping stuff overseas, but when you have a globally integrated market, and you know Toyota is doing innovation in auto technology and GM is not, then that is an important shift in the locus of innovation. It is notable that Tesla did not come from Detroit, mm. and so that yes, there are plenty of, of car jobs still left you know, in that area, but well, the counter example, the counter example, I would say, God, I, I, the name's going to escape me now, but it's, uh, it's the self-driving startup coming out of Ford. I interviewed the CEO and he specifically talked about, he went the other way. He, they, they started out in California and went back to Detroit. Right. So, yeah. So, so these, you know, these industrial clusters are powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a network of, uh, parts suppliers. You know, you may, maybe you don't need the engine stuff, but you need like the axles and doors and windows and all that stuff. Um, and you need to to be able to have close communication. And that's all physical stuff. Like it's not, it can't be produced remotely. It has to be produced on site. So um, what's interesting is that the remote, the shift remote work could affect the, the clustering of uh, industries that can, where the production is all done on computers. And so, uh, I mean, you have to have factories ultimately for, uh, you know, um, building cars. You've got to take this windshield and move it to where the frame is, you know, physically. But then if you have, if you're just writing code or if you're just, you know, doing like business consulting services or if you're just managing people, whatever, all, a lot of these things are just done on a computer. Um, I've even, I have a, yeah. I have a re really good friend that works at a biotech um, and like literally a scientist that, you know, is, you know, working on like cancer research and things like that. And he's been remote this entire year. And like, I've even asked him, like, how can you do your actual, don't you have to ha be in a lab and things like that? He's like, we, there's a lot of stuff that we can do on computers now for there too, you know? Um let me let me ask you this, in, and this is not about Silicon Valley. This is more about the larger question of remote work. Because one of the reasons I'm, I go back and forth, like I said, but I'm skeptical because I worked from home for a decade, and my life got better when I finally got an office. Um, and so I feel like people might not know to what degree having a a separation in your lives 
is is important. You you've talked about how you're a, a great remote worker. You could be working in a coffee shop in in Tokyo right now or whatever. But um, like, just give me just a random stab in the dark. Like, let's let's talk about these knowledge workers, if you want to call it that. Would you expect at the end of the decade it would be now 25% remote, 30%, 50%? What do you think? When you're talking about percent of remote, do you mean percent of hours or do you mean percent of... Right. Okay. That's a good question. How about, <laughs> how about uh, my definition would be um, y- you're not going into the office five days a week. That? Not going into the office five days a week, I predict will be 85% of people. Wow. That'll be almost everybody. Um, flexible work schedules are just make people more productive. It's not, that is settled science. We know that people don't need to be in an office all those days a week. And I don't know anyone who does that anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know anyone who goes into the office every day of, of the week anymore right. in the tech industry. Like zero. Um, they all have flexible work schedules. And of course, um, one of the biggest reasons is, is going to be, you know, is because of kids, childcare. Right. I think that, that, People understood that flexibility is very important for for childcare, for two income families, for women to have equality in the workplace. So I think that that pressure is is essentially irresistible. Um, the question of how many people are going to be 100% remote, I would say 10%. Maybe. Well, you know, again, one of the things that that boomerangs me back on this is it was what was it? It was in the Atlantic. I, I think it was Derek Thompson did a piece last week about how it was sort of the the lesson of network effects where it was like even a year ago um not everybody uh knew how to do remote so you couldn't assume that hey you know i just assume noah uh, i want to talk to you get on a zoom today right and we we all went through like sort of the onboarding of how to do this live remotely at the same time and so it like the network gets valuable exponentially with the amount of people on the network but then also he pointed out that like and and i hadn't thought this through like Again, a year ago, there was still sort of like, could you really go to your boss and be like, you know what, I demand to only come into the office two days a week. There was still sort of, that would be a risky sort of (laughs) cultural uh, thing, reputational thing. But now everybody has seen that it can work. And so that's completely gone away. The taboo is gone. Right. I think, uh, you know, Derek is a little too optimistic about the, or not optimistic. Derek is too bullish on the idea of, remote work unbundling cities because I think he hasn't thought um, uh, he hasn't thought enough about the non work things that would have to be unbundled. Um, He's thought mostly about the work things, but about uh, things like networking, tacit idea exchange, and most of all lifestyle. I think that lifestyle is, is actually the biggie. I want to live in or near a, a cool city with lots of interesting and fun things to do and interesting and fun people. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a, you know, smallish city. It had, it had a university. It was not a bad place to live. It was a decent place to grow up for sure. Uh, I don't want to go back to a place like that. And I think that people who have that choice don't want to go back to a place like that. Now I work remote already. My company's headquartered in New York. Um, when there's no pandemic, I go into the office two days a week, but that's not an office full of people doing any jobs related to me. It's the Bloomberg VC office that I go into. Uh, well, so, I was going to say, because Bloomberg headquarters is one of my favorite all time uh, to go into in New York city. Like, like that. I just love that building. I'd love, I'd love to work there. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. I used to work there. Um, 
I, uh, I don't work there anymore. And I, um, yeah, I work in San Francisco and I'm probably going to move to Japan where I used to live. And then I'll be in another crowded superstar city working for people in another crowded superstar city. And so that's, that's where I'm going to be. And I think that, that, um, Derek hasn't really considered that. So, so the number of people who leave their own company, superstar city doesn't necessarily equal the number of people who leave superstar cities as a group. Um, I guess the bottom line also is that if I'm quibbling about like, is it 10%? Is it 35%? It doesn't matter because any meaningful number, even if it was 5% of whatever percentage of the population is knowledge workers, if, if they go in less, if they only go in two days a week or whatever, like that has such huge knock-on effects for, you know, like infrastructure investment, traffic and real estate and office space and all that stuff. Right. So even, even if we're quibbling or arguing about like how impact, it's still going to have probably a meaningful impact that we'll notice this decade. Uh, I think it will have a meaningful impact that we'll notice this decade. But it will not. It will be a an evolution, not a revolution. Hmm. I think it will be a modest shift, and I think that the biggest beneficiaries will be other will be cities that can offer similar amenities with lower costs for certain classes of people for whom the difference between living in San Francisco and the difference and living in Dallas is not large. Uh, I think that there are a lot of such people. I'm not one of them, um, but there's a lot of people like that who just want just want to have some pretty good restaurants around just want to be somewhere where like, you know, the, 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 you know, musical theater will like come to and, you know, things like that. Um, who don't demand that like they be in the place with like the most interesting quirky characters and like coolest artists and whatnot, which I kind of do like for me, the superstarness of a city is more important. I think than for most people I've ever known, I, I want to be where cutting edge thoughts are, are, are being thought. And if they're, if, if 80% of those thoughts are being thought on zoom and clubhouse and whatnot, I still want to be in the place, you know, where the, the other 20% is concentrated, but, but I'm, I think I'm probably more that more, you know, abnormal in that sense, because I think a lot of people, they just want to be in a place with some good restaurants, some nice, you know, some fun places to go with the kids. A lot of people have kids. Um, you know, I just have rabbits <laughs> and I think that w- when we think about where these people want to go and want to be, we think about, you know, young single engineer and, and manager or types like basically young, single, high valued knowledge workers that because they're very mobile, you know, they're very, they're very mobile, but they're, but, um, their very mobility means that they can go and hang out for their twenties in a cool city and, you know, meet their partner and whatever, and have their fun and, and get drunk a bunch or whatever. Um, do some, some DMT. I don't know what, whatever. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then they do the, you know, they do all those things and then they, then they get married or whatever we're calling it these days. And then they move out to the burbs to, to raise their kids. Uh, I think that that progression is not going to really end. It's going to change a little bit. It's going to evolve, but I think it's not going to end. Yeah, we did that. It's just we moved from Manhattan to Park Slope, but um, you moved same, from Manhattan same, to Park Slope. Same deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before before I let you go, can I get your take on a couple of other things? Um, sure. You're on Substack, which um, let me not forget to plug that because um, mm-hmm. 
uh, first of all, you're the, you're my one of my favorite Twitter follows of all time. Your Substack now is a couple months old, and it's fantastic. Um, you're you have a huge following on Twitter. You're well known. You're you're right up Substack's alley. No doubt, Hamish has reached out to you to try to get you to burn the boats at Bloomberg and go all in on Substack. Uh, just I, uh, whatever you want to tell me about either your experience so far or what you think about the company and the opportunity it provides to writers and things like that. Substack is good. It um, it's still in its early stages and it needs to solve the uh, the bundling problem because currently you subscribe to like a few Substacks and that's all you can spend on media per month. Whereas if you subscribe to an equal number, if you take the same number of dollars and subscribe to like online publications, like online publications, you just get so many more writers, you get so much more of a diversity. So for people who want to follow like their one or two favorite writers, it's perfect. For people who want to, um, for people who want to follow like 30 writers, it's, it's, it's not the economies of scale don't work yet. And so they need to implement a bundling solution. I know they're working on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, great. You know, it's, um, it's it's something that needed to exist for a long time and it's brought blogging back and um there you know there's just like i'm always i'm always like annoying hamish on email with like suggestions and and things for little tweaks but i don't want to focus on those little tweaks because Substack's really you know it's uh it's a good product it's um and it's i think the most important thing it, it's doing is it's making discussion more reasonable again because twitter is really optimized the, the way you get attention on Twitter is by dunking on people and by fighting, uh, by saying, look at this idiot. Like dunking is Twitter mm-hmm. and it's terrible for our, for our national discourse and just for our ability to think about things. And so clubhouse and Substack, I think are both made with the inherent shittiness of Twitter in mind. Um, Twitter is incredibly convenient. It's super viral. It's great for getting news. It's great for just randomly talking to anybody you want. Twitter has such advantages and then such disadvantages. It's, it's, it's a machine for hate and, you know, uh, contentiousness and, and bridge burning and misunderstanding. And um, I, I recognize the importance and enduring power of Twitter at the same time that I think it's a complete dumpster fire and I hate it. And, and Substack is helping to bring back blogging, which was always better. Like, yes, people say mean things about each other on their blogs. Um, yes, you can get attention for fighting, but it's, it's, you have to be more reasonable. It's long form stuff. You can't just take like a little snippet out of context and then like make that the basis of your, of your denunciation attack. And so it's, it's just much, it's training our discussion toward reasonability and clubhouse is doing the same thing. I mean, clubhouse, you have, you have discussions between people who would just absolutely be, you know, dunking on each other and tearing at each other's throats on Twitter, who are having a reasonable voice discussion on clubhouse because voice we human beings are programmed, if you want to call it that, to be reasonable when we're talking to each other by voice, um, even more so on video, I think. But but just voice creates this human element and this this back and forth. Of course, you know, Clubhouse is, is real names. And of course, podcasts are doing this too. You know, podcasts are making, our discourse is becoming more reasonable. But because Twitter is the only one of these where you can get breaking news, um, people are still, everyone's still trapped on Twitter. In 2023, just 10 vulnerabilities accounted for over half of the incidents responded to by our sponsors today, Arctic Wolf Incident Response. Wouldn't you love to know how to take these vulnerabilities off the table and make life more difficult for cybercriminals? 
That's just one of the essential insights you'll find inside the Arctic Wolf Labs 2024 Threats Report. Authored by their elite team of security researchers, data scientists, and security development engineers, and backed by the data gained from trillions of weekly observations within thousands of unique environments, this report offers expert analysis into attack types, root causes, top vulnerabilities, TTPs, and more. Discover the attack vectors behind nearly half of all successful cybercrimes, why ransom demands climbed 20% from 2023, and find out why 2024 will be an especially volatile year for cybersecurity. Learn more and get your copy now at arcticwolf.com forward slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com forward slash techmeme. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ka-ching. As you know, I still run the first company I ever founded 25 years ago entirely on Shopify these days. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-order stage. Shopify is there to help you grow the whole way. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling. Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is that you can take any business to the next level, even 25-year-old ones, but especially 25-day-old ones. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ride, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash ride now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ride. Um, last thing. Hold on. I'm going to change my background if I can do it. Because the funny thing uh-huh. is, the funny we thing showed. is, I had planned for my last question all along was to have you give me f- some sci-fi recommendations. And funny enough, in my inbox this morning, you went ahead and gave your master list um, of, of, cause here's the deal. Like I've been a sci-fi reader all my life, but I missed out on all like the seventies cool stuff. Like I just got, I, I read earth sea for the first time this year, ring mm. world recently, forever world recently. So forever war, sorry, recently. So like, mm. there's so much I need to catch up on. And I, I, that doesn't even count all the European stuff. Like, um, the only reason I know Bujold is because of you. Um, mm. so, uh, number one, uh, I, I'm having a hard time with Bujold because I maybe I picked the wrong one to start out with. Actually, let me. Which one did I try? Um, I started out with uh, Barryar. Um, B a r r a y a r. That is exactly the one you should start with. Okay, because it keeps referencing. I'm maybe a third of the way through. It keeps referencing the previous battle she was in. I right. hadn't even got to her, her giving birth, or I think there's some twist coming up right now but um but like so i kept feeling like well i'm missing all of the references and all of the sly winks and things that i should know about uh the, no to be honest a lot of those aren't anywhere mm. so um there is a book shards of honor which came before barriar it's it uh is not as well written mm-hmm. uh it's worth reading just for completion but it's um it's more sort of like a star trek episode with bdsm and <laughs> Barriar is really where it's the, the, the series starts getting amazing. And, um, it's the second book. 
And uh, oh, be sure to catch Falling Free, which okay. is another sort of side side book. And then and then the series stays amazing for like you know ten books or something, and then it starts to you know trail off a bit. Um, but it's one of the most consistent series. So I mean, I've read Stevenson, of course, uh, uh, Margaret Atwood. I'm just going to like I'm trying to think of um, Verna Vinge. See, I haven't. Okay, so oh, I, should, I should start with that one. That's the very first one on your list. Uh, oh, yeah, he's great. Books. Charlie Jane Anders. Okay, what's the what's that series? Uh, All the birds in the sky is the first is her first novel, mm-hmm. and it is just one of the best ever written. Um, she just came out with a new one, or is coming out with soon. Um, but yeah, and and um, she has a couple novels and then a whole bunch of short stories that I really love. But she's uh, she's so good. Um, and then, uh, oh, there's a number of other good ones. I mean, you know, Bruce Sterling, of course, Gibson, uh, a lot of the cyberpunk classics. What's the uplift saga by David Brin? Oh yeah. That's a, that's a saga. If you really like animals, hmm. um, then you, then, then that series is for you because it's about sentient dolphins and chimpanzees. So humans sort of use technology to make dolphins and chimpanzees human level sentient. And, um, and then, they find themselves very rapidly having to participate in an interstellar war. And so it's just about these, these dolphins and chimps thinking like, what the hell are we doing here? What is our purpose? You know, like they don't have history. They don't have like this deep memory of, of that humans have of like this long history thing. They're just like, we just arrived. And before that we were just like animals. (laughs) What do we do now? And so it's, it's really interesting about like the search for collective purpose for your species. Did I see you say on Twitter, maybe even just today, that you don't like? Who is it that you say you don't like? Because I had read him. Ooh, the, the post scarcity books. Yeah, yeah, the the culture. Uh, Ian M. Banks. Yeah, um, that is an author that almost everyone does like. Yeah, and I do not like. I'm I'm very very against the mainstream on that, but it's just personal preference. I have no, mm. I, there, there's no. I, I'm not going to point to those books and say this is why this is bad because I don't think it's bad. I just it doesn't tickle my pickle. You know what I mean? Um, you have, uh, the dispossessed, which again, I only did the earth, the earth sea cycle. Oh yeah. Um, so, well, like, all right. Give me one more, just one more that you would make an argument for that. Maybe the listeners wouldn't know about either a writer or a, or a series or a book or anything from this list. Oh, I mean, I have to think about, well, the, the one that people aren't going to know is Tony Daniels series from the early two thousands meta starting with metaplanetary. Like nobody knows those books. They just completely bombed. No one bought them or read them. They're so good. There are only two of them, Metaplanetary and Superluminal. Um, I mean, that's that's a, a real hidden gem. Uh, I feel like not enough people have read Oryx and Crake. It's one of the best. Yeah, I love that one. People didn't, like the sci-fi community barely recognized it. They just ignored Oryx and Crake. And that was terrible because that's like one of the, that should have won the Hugo Award that year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and just people ignored it. Uh, Oh yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of oh the um the uh, Yoon Ha Lee books. Hmm. If uh, if people like to read absolutely just far out wacky psychedelics sci-fi, just like um you know like now I've invented a gun that turns you into cheese and like it's like it's like Roger Zelazny stuff. You, it's you like it's like yeah. Zelaznian level of weirdness uh-huh. or like Samuel Delaney kind of level of like you know 
what the hell is going on now. You're recommending <laughs> and, um, it's called the the Machineries of Empire series. Right. That's And unfortunately, that's part of the trend toward having series with names that nobody realized that that's the name of the series they're reading. Mm-hmm. Like no one reads Three Body and thinks, ah, I'm reading the first of Remembrance of Earth's Past. Right, right, right. It's called Three Body. So the first the first Yoon Ha Lee book is called Nine Fox Gambit. And so that's the one people should pick up. Nine Fox Gambit. It's really weird and far out, and I like it a lot. All right, I want to end with a recommendation, uh, which is a podcast, uh, because um, I tweeted the other day when I discovered about this that this is a holy shit. I instantly subscribed. Couldn't subscribe because you guys weren't on the iTunes thing yet, but you just uh, started a podcast called Hexapodia. Hexapodia. Uh, Hexapodia. Yes. See, this Hexapodia. is like a techery thing. You're going to... Okay, all right. <laughs> it's podcasting, so I'm, my tendency is to say Hexapodia. But there you go. All right. Hexapodia. Uh, it, In fact, we probably should call it Hexapodia. Yeah. Well, we'll we go ahead. We should pronounce it that way. Uh, That's a good idea. You and Brad DeLong, who is also one of my longtime favorite follows for anything economic stuff. So um, tell me what you guys want to do with this. We're going to just talk about economics and uh, nerdy stuff. So essentially, we're going to take one econ-related topic per week and just chew over it for about half an hour. And then we'll... Um, We'll pepper that with a bunch of sci-fi references and sort of nerdy esoteric history references that nobody knows and math jokes and just whatever dumb nerdy things come to our minds and we'll alienate all our listeners who are like, oh my God, this is too nerdy. I can't listen to this. No, it'll be great. Everyone will listen to our podcast. We're so great. No, 100%. I, I'm, and we're going to talk about this as soon as we're done here, but you guys have uh, chemistry and like that's something that you can't buy or train. <laughs> so, um, yeah. but also I just you know you're right. I'm I'm thinking, you know I love it every time I see Ben Thompson go on some new venue and he has to go through for the nth time the pronunciation of stratechery. So yeah, uh, you know what that maybe that's a sign of a good show is if you're always going to have to explain to people no it's Estonia. <laughs> um, Listen, well, you, people don't even know that that stratechery is a is a joke from the Bush Gore election. Right from at this Saturday point, Night live. Right at this point, <laughs> no, like, one, no would one knows know. that that history. Yeah, like uh, I got it immediately. I'm the right generation for that. Noah, thanks for thanks for coming on, and I hope you'll come on and talk to us again. Thank you, man. It was great.